0: It is wonderful to see you this morning, um, and welcome to those of you who are new. I'm delighted to uh, see you here, and I'm looking forward to meeting you after the service. I'm the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church, um, and we've, we've been worshiping together um, in this space since January, and, and it's a delight to see the ways that God has, has been forming this church. We've been, in the last several weeks and months, over the summer, in, in the book of Romans together, um, we don't often spend this much time in one book, but it's been nice over this, this summer to be in, in uh, knee-deep, waist-deep, neck-deep in the book of Romans, and we still have a few more weeks left, but today we get into chapter nine together, and as we do, let me pray for us. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, would you help us to be attentive to the compassion that you show to us? and all the ways that you want to share your compassion with others through us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, um, I'd been in Washington, D.C. visiting, and we were by the Lincoln Memorial, and there was this little patch of grass that had been rented out by a group of Korean Christians. And as we walked by, my son and I... uh, We didn't know anything, and I still don't know anything about the group's theology, but it was interesting that as I was walking by and seeing uh, what I think was a worship service, I saw symbols that they had put up uh, around where they were, and those symbols were a Korean flag So that's how I knew they were Korean It was also in the name of the church So I <laughs> Some common sense there But So there was a Korean flag, there was an American flag And there was a flag of Israel Interestingly there were no crosses um, And so that was Fascinating uh, to me As a church That this would be the sign uh, The visible signs Of the things that you want to Show others that you're about And um and, and so the relationship of national Israel to the church is a really complicated one. Uh, and it is one that has been complicated since the first century, uh, when it seems like in Paul's day, most of the Jews uh, who were his kinsmen were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Certainly not all were, but the majority were. And so those are the issues that St. Paul is about to tackle in Romans 9, verses, uh, sorry, not just chapter 9. 9, 10, and 11 so he's going to spend three chapters um, one third of all Old Testament quotations are found in the book of Romans in those three chapters so he's relying heavily on, the, on what was the scriptures at his time to talk about um, the relationship of Israel to this, this body of the Messiah and so he's really careful to thread the needle in these chapters around what is Israel's place in God's redemptive history And the scriptures were looking ahead to God's Messiah, who would have provided salvation for for God's people, and even though the synagogue would have been the early seedbed for growth, the growth had now spilled out onto Gentile soil, and it seemed like Christianity was becoming more predominant among Gentiles than among Jews, which didn't feel like the original plan uh, to those who were inside, and so He's spending a lot of time in, the, in this chapter at least Convincing other Jewish Christians that uh, Oh, and I should say he's spent a lot of times in other places Convincing Jewish Christians that Gentiles Don't have to follow the Jewish law to follow Jesus They don't have to follow the, and keep the badges of the Old Covenant Which were, you know, circumcision, the food laws, Sabbath Those things weren't um, the badges of the Christian faith for the Gentile And so it seems like in in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, some of the Gentiles might have been possibly looking down on their Jewish brothers and sisters, especially within the church. And there may have been speculation in some Jewish circles um, and Jewish Christian circles that St. Paul was some kind of traitor to his own people. And this is a real problem that arises. So that's why he's going to spend so much time explaining and integrating the old covenant into the new so that jesus is both israel's messiah and he's also lord of all the nations holding those two things in tension and so even even though he's going to do that chapters 9 through 11 are still really complicated i'm not going to get into all the nuances of it Um, there are commentary upon commentary for centuries arguing about some of the most debated passages in these chapters But God had given Israel great blessings and promises through the patriarchs. And even when you look back at the book of Exodus, which is part of the first five books of the law, the Israelites were called to be a royal priesthood. And when you talk about a royal priesthood, priesthood has the idea of intercession for others within it. And so these blessings would have been given to Abraham, not just for those of his physical seed, but to those who would join Abraham in his faith. With his God And so Israel's plan wasn't just meant To be for Israel But it was for others outside of Israel And so in verse 5 Paul says that uh, To Israel belonged the patriarchs Think Abraham, Jacob, Isaac And that it was from Israel That the Messiah was going to come And then he describes Jesus This is one of those places In the New Testament Where he actually calls Jesus God Very bluntly He says Jesus is God over all blessed forever amen so this messiah who is an israelite in the flesh was also god himself and as god himself he created all peoples and so his allegiance is not just to israel but to all the nations of the earth because they consist of people who are made in god's image and so messiah israelite in the flesh who is also god overall blessed forever amen that's the tension and there's ultimately then one people of God, one redemption story that's begun in the Old Testament, begun in the Old Covenant, fulfilled in the New Covenant. And that's why I like um, Old Testament scholar uh, John Gay, who's also an Anglican priest. He refers to the Old Testament as the First Testament um, because it's the first part of God's redemptive story. It, there's a continuity. And so the New Covenant becomes the lens by which we read The Old Covenant. We also read this morning, we we read a section out of Jonah chapter 2, which is a beautiful psalm in the middle of a narrative uh, about a wayward prophet being swallowed by a fish. Um, We were just talking before the service, Spike and I, about... The VeggieTales version of this, which is well worth seeing, um, and so God had called Jonah uh, as a prophet to go preach to the Ninevites, these people who, in VeggieTales, were slapping each other with fishes. Um, but these, you know, these people, as they were described in the Book of Jonah, didn't know their right hand from their left. Is how God describes them, meaning they they were worshiping um, deities and fatalism. In a way, they were just longing for the creator of the universe and did not know what they were missing. But Jonah's posture is to preserve his own people and to preserve his own traditions rather than risk what what God might do among the Assyrians, the people who were not God's people. And so when you read Jonah, it's really interesting that they put this together with Romans 9 in our lectionary because he sort of acts as a foil for St. Paul. Two different postures towards what is not God's people. Um, St. Paul's loyalty to his own community was what was in question here. Whereas when you read Jonah, you're almost invited to question whether Jonah has a loyalty to God's redemptive plan for the nations. Uh, And and Jonah is a... A symbolic representative of Judah at the time So when we read the book of Jonah It's not just the words he says that are important It's the example that he does That's supposed to preach to Israel As they're Judah, as they're reading it And and as such, then the question becomes Are they committed to God's redemptive plan for the nations? And so the book of Jonah ends with God asking um, The angry and the obstinate prophet Jonah a question should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, which, by the way, is about the size of Springfield, Franconia, Fort Belvoir. Right? Um, and then he also says, and also much cattle. Right? Should, I, should I not have compassion on these things? Um, And so the the book serves as this call for post-exilic Israel, for Judah, to commit themselves again to this global redemptive work that God is doing among the nations. And so in considering these two things together, Jonah and St. Paul as foils for one another, I think that we're called to remind ourselves of God's global redemption plan and our place in it that what God is doing in you and I is part of this greater work that he has been doing in the nations from the time of the patriarchs. It almost feels like Jonah is just so fiercely committed to preserving his own distinctiveness, his own separateness of his own people, that he's not open to the ways that the compassion of God might surprise him and what it might accomplish outside of his community. St. Paul was so fiercely committed to God's love being poured out among other people that his loyalty to his own people became questioned. So what we need is integration and openness. Integration and openness. Integration of what God is doing and what he has done, but then an openness to what God will do. And those two things are connected. So in integrating our story with scripture... It is okay to hold on to big question marks of how reading a certain passage might apply to our place in God's redemptive story. Um, It's a lifelong journey to hear the things of the old covenant and then to ask how we're supposed to read those things in the light of the new covenant. That's not something that's always immediately apparent. And then how praying things in the old covenant are going to fashion us into the image of Christ. Like, that's not always immediately apparent. And that's okay. There are times when I hear scriptures read, um, even from the pulpit here, uh, during Sundays. But, you know, when I do morning or evening prayer, I'll hear the scriptures like a woman driving a tent peg through somebody's temple, uh, a tribe being wiped out, instructions on how to build tent curtains, um, Men taking hundreds of women as wives, like there's there's things in the scriptures that border on what feels like unjust, and things that are just kind of like why, um, right? And and all of those um, are there, and they're part of the lectionary, and, and they're part of our readings. And then after that reading, the lector will say, "The word of the Lord," and then I, you know, we respond, "Thanks be to God." But I find myself and maybe you do this too i 'm just being honest so that you can be honest um, I find myself going thanks to be to God <laughs> with with a question mark kind of in my brain I know that that's God 's word but how um, and I and I love the scriptures and yet I still wonder sometimes why the church over time has considered it uh, necessary to preserve some of the passages that end up in our canon of scripture. And that's okay. We can sit with that tension and trust the Lord. I can affirm that this is still the word of the Lord and still offer to God my question mark. And I can tell him that, you know, this doesn't seem very fitting with what I know to be true about you or your character. That's actually what lamentation is uh, in the Psalms. And it's okay to have parts of scripture that we don't understand yet. Um, Neither should we make the mistake of rushing to quick application, right? I've heard some people jump way too quickly to make moral or ethical applications to narratives that are really complex without understanding how maybe there's literary paneling or how a couple chapters fit together, but they're quick to make an application. Sometimes the best thing to do as we're reading scripture is to tell God, you know what? I don't understand this right now. I'd like to. Um, and I don't understand how to read this as a new covenant Christian whatsoever. And so I'm going to put that on the shelf for now. And I'm going to cling to what I do now. And that that's okay to do. You and I are inheritors of the faith of the patriarchs. Um, that came through Jesus. That came through the apostles. And the apostolic faith doesn't, doesn't read the scriptures just as an academic exercise. Um, for the life of the mind. The apostolic tradition that's been handed down to us hears the scriptures as an act of faith for transformation. And so those pieces that that might take a few readings or even a few readings and that we don't understand, it's okay to shelf them because the point of reading is not necessarily to understand all the things in front of you from an academic standpoint, uh, but we are to be transformed in heart, soul, mind, and, and strength. And that involves God searching our hearts and a willingness to open up to the stories of Scripture, uh, to the one who is bringing to bear a story of love and redemption for humankind and creation itself in Christ, to bear ourselves to that God. And so I've always really loved the Book of the Twelve, which we read from this morning, Hosea through Malachi, Minor Prophets. I read them a lot, and I remember... Um, there was one really challenging season in my life, and I felt led to reread and restudy the book of Habakkuk. And, and I remember sitting with the movements of uh, Habakkuk's questions in chapter one. He's got three really poignant questions that he gives to the Lord. And then chapter two, he's got five woe oracles uh, um, against the enemies. It's called a taunt song, it's almost like uh, singing a. a Taunt over your enemies who are defeated. And then there's two Psalms in the final chapter. So this little three chapter book has a lot going on in it. And I remember getting to the end at one point after I'd read this book several times and being brought to tears in the last section of the book of Habakkuk when he talks about God setting his feet on the high places like a deer. Uh, And it wasn't because I finally understood cognitively what was happening. It it was like Jesus all of a sudden said to me, you know what? I'm your cliff of safety, and I've set you on the rock. There's nothing that can get to you. It's okay. And, And you could have told me that, right, at some point. And it may not have hit me the same. But in that moment of reading, it was like the Holy Spirit read me through the text. And that kind of experience does not happen a lot for me. Uh, it's really rare that I come to scripture and God brings me to tears. Um, I'll admit that. you know. And But again, like like Tish Warren says, you don't remember every meal you had, but you needed them all to sustain you. Um, and I only remember about 10 meals I've had in my life. I have a terrible memory. And so I'm willing to say that there might be these punctuated moments of, of bringing me to tears, but that I needed all the other ones to bring me there. And... And so if I don't make a habit of digesting the scriptures regularly, then I won't have those moments. And so I need to have those, Um, not expecting to have those moments every time, remember, but but to set the stage for the Holy Spirit to speak. And second, I think the other thing this passage and, and thinking about Jonah teaches us is to tell our story as part of God's overarching redemptive plan with an openness to what he will do. So in contrast to Jonah, we see St. Paul in his posture, who St. Paul um, afflicted the comfortable by tying together the story of what God had done in the past with what he was seeing God do around him in communities where that wouldn't have necessarily been uh, easily acceptable. And you and I have a story of redemption that, um, to tell, and, and not all of the pieces of our stories have been put together yet, Um, nor do we know how every piece is going to fit in it. In fact, we're probably still discovering pieces that are on the floor. Uh, But you and I are part of God's redemptive plan and his redemption story. I was building a tower with our son, a a little marble tower uh, for the the marbles to go down. And there are lots of little pieces, uh, little ramps, and I don't know what you call them, little windmills and stuff. And And, you know, we assemble this thing, we take it apart, reassemble it, and as we build, we build that thing from the bottom up every time to kind of figure out where the foundation is, and then we, we go up. And each piece, as it lies on the floor, we look at it, and then we give it a purpose in the overall structure of this marble tower. And as we build, the number of pieces on the floor slowly decrease, because we're putting them into the tower. And sometimes... I would look at a piece as we're building, and I would realize, you know that's in the wrong place. I need to put it somewhere else, turn it around. Uh, and instead of continuing to build, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to set it aside for a second, I'm going to put another piece where I know it'll go to see if something else will make sense right now. And I had a moment when I was constructing this marble tower because this passage was in the back of my brain, and I was thinking, you know, this is a lot like Um, Life, which has so many pieces to it. And as we walk with the Lord, he is in this process of putting those pieces into place slowly, maybe turning some around, um, helping us see them differently. But that is the story of redemption and love, is God putting these pieces into place. All the joyous places, all the ordinary ones, all the painful ones that may not fit, that seem to be left on the floor, like, what do I do with this? Sometimes pieces are going to sit on the floor without a purpose for quite some time, but we can wait with patience for the day that God will place it into the structure. And it's important that we share our stories as God's piecing together the different parts of our lives. Um, Insofar as that's appropriate, of course, right? Because uh, you have to have a certain level of intimacy and trust to share the fuller story that you're going through. And I realize that as we process the more painful parts of our stories, there are very few, parts, uh, very few people who should hear us process those, and that's okay. But in general, God is doing something in each and every one of us. And so if you think of the ways that God is, is building your story into the larger redemptive work, then we should work at integrating that story with what God has been doing since the promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham. And that story, to be shared, is then a precious gift because it shows other people the gospel of God. Um, and, it, and it shows the gospel not as something that's just intellectually true, but that's actually holistically good. Right? It's not, the gospel is not just intellectually true. It's got to be holistically good. And so it can be really helpful then to share our stories um, as far as we're able, and to be honest about where the pieces are that don't quite fit yet, and to say, I'm still waiting for God to redeem that piece, and that that's okay. Um, and that allows us to continue the conversation with God, and even to continue that conversation with God in community with one another. And so it's okay for for us to put things on the shelf until God reveals the place for it, if he does. Um, because I know some of the most powerful stories that I've heard before are when people will say, you know, there was this piece and I'm not actually sure how it fits yet, but actually in the midst of that piece not fitting properly, God's presence became very real to me. So he didn't give me answers, but he gave me himself. And that's also a really powerful story of God's redemption. And so Romans 9, it begins St. Paul's really nuanced discussion of God's. Uh, history of redemption the place of the Jews within it he cares that these stories of redemption include the Gentiles uh, because this Jewish Messiah is God over all uh, who's, who made all things and who all the tongue, tribes and nations are going to worship his allegiance then is to all the nations that he's made because in them it, there is uh, they consist of people who are created in God's image and so you and I like St. Paul, we have this story of redemption that God is telling, that in us there is a story of love and mercy and grace and redemption. And so, do we know our own stories? Are we aware of our own stories this morning? Take some time today, some time this week, to write out what God is doing in you, through you, Um. And the ways that that might tie back in to the past. What are you waiting for him to do? These are questions you can write down for yourself too. What am I waiting for God to do? Right? I'm often reminded of Jesus uh, when he asks the man who's sick, what is it you would like me to do for you? Uh, and sort of forces the man to say it. And so it's good for us to be forced to do that place too. God, this is what I would like for you to do. Um, and to let God have that. Uh, as these ask those questions as you're praying the scriptures and then as it's appropriate share your story with others with a desire to see what God's redemption might do in them be open to being surprised does our story provoke our hearts to want God's redemption for other people when i see somebody am i provoked to compassion or do i find myself like jonah I'm running away, waiting for God to just destroy them while I sit on the mountaintop. Um, and if I'm not provoked to compassion, then why not? And those are all just helpful questions to pay attention to as you're reading the scripture. Where is your story in this? Am I aware of my story? What would I like God for me to do, to do for me in this season? Um, am, I, am I brought to compassion for the heart and the, the redemption of others? May God grant us grace as a community to be that kind of church where our stories um, of redemption become the guide to the ways that we are pursuing how to become a church together for the life of the world around us. To be saved as one redeemed people, to bring others into God's redemptive story. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, would you take the fractured parts of our lives? Would you mend them? you fix them, redeem them, and give them a purpose and a home. Take our everyday moments and give us the grace to see how our past and our present are being interwoven into this tapestry of love and redemption through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.